here. Grab your Bibles, please, and turn with me to the book of Mark. The book of Mark, chapter number 6. Most of us have a desire to rise above a ho-hum kind of life. To escape the doldrums. Maybe you have that same desire. To really move beyond the daily grind because sometimes the daily grind is grinding us into a pulp and we'd like to move a little bit beyond that. Ever wondered how much of an activity of what you do really matters? Come to the end of the day and say, how much of what I just did really matters a whole lot? I think Jesus found himself at that point and decided he needed to get a little bit of time away for some perspective. When your kids have turned you into a taxi service and you come to the end of the day after having been a taxi and you say, I spent nine months of of carrying this kid so that they could turn me into a taxi. When your kids have turned you one more time into a bank and you have muttered something about as you reach for your wallet again, saying, you know, it doesn't grow on trees. At that point in time, an inventory is really important in our hearts and our lives. A little perspective to make sure that we know where we're going. That what we're doing really matters. We all go through moments like that. And it's important for us to keep our perspective in life when we do go through moments like that. Jesus was no different. Jesus required some time away to make sure that he had perspective, to adjust his priorities, to ask important questions and come up with some answers to those questions. And so we come to a point in time in the story of Jesus Jesus and Mark, and and we find this part in Mark chapter 6, we find that Jesus wanted to get away for a little bit so that he could could take his disciples and debrief. He had sent them out, and they had gone out preaching and preached that the kingdom of God is here. And according to Matthew, they had done lots of miracles, and the, the sick had been healed. The blind were made to see, and all sorts of fantastic things had happened at the hands of the disciples. And as they came back together, they wanted a little bit of time to debrief. And so verse number 30 of Mark 6 says, The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no opportunity, no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. They needed some perspective. Perhaps a day on the lake will help. Maybe you have been there and thought that a day on the lake, nothing like a day fishing. There's a thought... This will tell you a little bit about my pastime, pastimes and what I like and don't like. There's a fine line between sitting there with the line in the water feeling like an idiot and fishing. Since I usually can't find that line, I avoid the activity almost altogether. You may, however, think that there's nothing better than to go, go fishing, to get out on the lake, to spend a little time next to some water, to go boating, to do those things that we do so that we can have some time away, some sort of flash, a quiet day away from the rest. Have you ever wondered why we call it a quiet day when we go out and there's 35 bazillion boats on the water all around us and we're swerving to make sure that we miss everybody else who's also out there to have a quiet day? Perspectives can reorient our world. They can reorient who we are. But Jesus, like celebrities of all ages, was never very far away from the paparazzi. Never far away from the crowds and people waiting to snap his picture. He dealt with it a little differently than what we did, of course. Jesus did not have 35,000 cameras waiting to take his picture. 
But Jesus, nonetheless, had crowds who followed him everywhere. So, verse number 33 becomes really important. How many saw them, now many saw them coming and going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd. This was his day off. Leave me alone. Turn off my cell phone. Forget that you have my number kind of day off. I'm going to the lake. I would rather not speak to you kind of day off. Just me and my friends are going to go have a great time. Could you forget for a moment that I am the master and the rabbi? I just want to go have a day off. I don't want my boss to call me. The sales problem that they're having, if they can't fix it, then why, just fire everyone else who's in the office because you might as well. I guess I'm the only one who can solve the world's problems. Ever been there? That's where they were. Really, you mean you couldn't solve that small problem about cookies in the oven that you left too long? You couldn't figure out you should just throw them away so I didn't know about your cooking nightmare? That kind of day and time. Oh, maybe you as a parent or as an employee or as a boss have been there. That's where Jesus was. The next few words are really telling. Because he saw all of the crowds and it says, Jesus had compassion on them. Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. Oh, Lord, have mercy. It reminds me of that movie, What About Bob? Maybe you've seen that movie. You probably love the movie. I despise that movie. It is the worst movie ever created amongst men. Why? Well, if you don't know the movie, you may not know why. I think that because I know Bob. I mean, I don't know Bob, and my Bob was not named Bob. He had a much different name, but let's not go there for the moment. Bob was this psychopath. I don't know how else to describe him. He had a few screws loose, and everybody knew it. He th remember his joke? Roses are red, violets are blue, I'm a schizophrenic, and so am I. And, and of course, everyone laughed thinking that this was hilarious. Bob follows his therapist on vacation. And while they're on vacation, everyone, including the psychologist, the therapist's family, all of the residents, everyone falls in love with Bob and hates the psychologist. While they're on vacation, the psychologist is driven so mad by Bob, he comes up with this new therapy that he tells Bob about. If you've seen the movie, you now already know what I'm talking about. He straps Bob to a tree, puts dynamite at the bottom of the tree, and told him that the, that the very fear would scare Bob out of his problems. What he really wanted to do was blow him up. This is what about Bob all over again. They followed him. His work was going home with him. I say that I hate the movie because I kind of have been there. I had people in my church one time who would watch out their front door. They lived just down the street from where I lived. They would watch out their front door and wait for me to walk from my house to the church office. They would count to 60. That was enough time for me to unlock the interior door and be in my office and the phone would ring. I had somebody else who discovered after about three phone calls that I was the only one in the office on Wednesday afternoons. So they would wait until about one o'clock Wednesday afternoons and the phone would ring. I would answer the phone because I was the only one in the office. And the guy would say, oh, hello, pastor. What are you doing? I mean, I'm talking to you. What do you think I'm doing? I am preparing for my Bible study tonight. It's Wednesday, you know. Oh, good. You're not doing anything. No, I am doing something. 
I, this just feels like what about well, Jesus, faced with the same decision, goes even had the opportunity to go even further away from the crowds. He could have simply told his disciples, um, "Let you push me on the boat. Let's go on out a little bit. We'll talk out there. You all are fishermen. You can handle that. We'll just go on out there." He could have sent the crowds away and said, "No, folks, no teaching, no preaching at this point in time. We're just going to gather together. It is easy for us to live the story through Jesus and to make his decisions for him. But just stop and think for a moment about the decisions you would or could have made in similar situations." Jesus chose to be a good steward of his opportunity to see the crowds and to say that he was willing to trade his quiet day for a noisy crowd. If we're going to be good stewards of the things God's put in our life, we have to make similar trades. We have to be willing to say, I will make these kinds of trades. I will trade my own personal rejuvenation so that, and expend, expend my energy on behalf of people. We must be willing to make those kinds of trades because God has put things in our lives that we ought to be good stewards of. To be a good steward simply means that the things that God has given us, we ought to use wisely. And in order to do that, we have to be willing to make some trades. And the first one of those is to trade our quiet day for a large crowd. With that trade, Jesus would spend all day teaching the people. Again, it is easy to live that decision for him, to become used to the story and accustomed to it and not realize the sacrifice he made in being willing to teach the people. There was a call on his life and that incredible call for Jesus said that he would preach to those who were broken hearted and those who needed to be healed and those who needed deliverance and salvation. And to follow in his footsteps, we have to be willing to make similar trades in life. To be willing to trade a day that otherwise might be a quiet day for us, so that we can do what God has in mind. We have to be willing to trade our own cravings for compassion upon the lost. This defines compassion right here. Being willing to trade what you have for somebody else, so that they can have something. People will, young people will often come to me, Pastor, we're in love. That's fantastic. How long have you known each other? Oh, about three minutes. Let me give that crowd here, those younger, just a little bit of fatherly advice for a moment, okay? My mom used to tell me every relationship has to go through three stages. The first one is they can do nothing wrong. The second one is they can do nothing right. And the third one is I know what you do wrong, I know what you do right, and I'll put up with you anyway. <laughs> Decisions made in the first stage are always disastrous. Most decisions don't make it beyond the second. Most relationships don't make it beyond the second stage. And that's fine. If you can't make it beyond the second stage, you ought to walk away. Most of them come to the third. How do you know when you're really in love through those stages? You come to the point in time where you would rather do something for them than for yourself. I knew that Cheryl was the right one for me when after we'd been going out for a while, a period of time, I don't recall how long, I realized that in my heart, everything I'd felt for everyone else who I thought I kind of liked was now radically different with her. Rather than wanting to do things for myself in the relationship so that I could feel good about being with the person or all of these other things, I wanted to do something that was really good and special for her. And that's when it dawned on me, oh, I think that's what love is. That's what compassion is. When you're willing to trade your own cravings for someone else. Stewardship suggests that we ought to be act in ways that are not immediately obvious to someone else. And frankly, it's the only way to rise above a whole ho-hum kind of lull in life. To trade quiet days for large crowds. To be willing to trade a quiet Saturday morning so that you could go to a free health clinic and help people who are there and are in need. It 
may ask you to give away a year of your life in Bulgaria or wherever. Give a morning helping at the local food pantry. But pastor, I'm busy. I have things I would rather do. I need some quiet time. That's fantastic. So did Jesus. Remember I said it's easy to live his decision for him. Say, well, of course he'd do that. He's Jesus. And forget that the challenge of walking with Jesus is to make the same decisions. To say, I am willing to give up my own quiet time for a noisy crowd so that I am, can always make sure that I am doing what he has in mind. To be a good steward, you have to trade your cravings for compassion. You have to be willing to make re trades which are required if you're going to be a good steward of what God has for you. Another one of those trades is to trade your own expectations for investment in other people. Now, let's go on with the story. The story is well known, so I won't read the rest of it. And it goes on with a lot of detail to make sure we know everything about the story that would really help us. So let me just tell you what, how the story unfolds. Jesus teaches all day long. That in and of itself should be a miracle. I've often thought I would try. Maybe this morning I'll try that. It's 9.54. I could go another five or six hours. Maybe I have no idea what I'd say for five or six hours. Uh, Jesus went on and on and on. And somehow I think that when Jesus taught, it didn't feel like he was going on and on and on. But maybe that's my own insecurity as a speaker. Jesus, after having taught all day, the people had not eaten. And one of his disciples came and said, uh... Master, you know, you've been speaking a little while here. We didn't have any cookings. We didn't have any water set out. The secretaries didn't put out any lemonade. There's, no, there's nothing here. What are we going to do? And another one of the disciples, who knows, they all had big mouths. One of them spoke up and said, send them all away. What are we gonna, how are we going to feed all these people? Do you realize, Master, there's 5,000 men? I know, because Judas counted them all and ran the numbers. If everyone gave a shilling, how much money we could raise... And he said, that's just the men, you know, there's a lot of women, children here, they're going to eat a little bit, I suppose, just for us to feed the men, that would take forever. We'd need an army, and we'd need enough food for an army. Send them all away, and somebody else said, send them away? There isn't enough food in all the surrounding towns to feed this kind of a mass, what are we supposed to do? And Jesus then said, what do you have? And one of the disciples had clearly worked his way through the crowd, and had found a boy who wasn't hiding, which might be a miracle, I... If you're in a crowd of 10,000 people and you realized after they'd been speaking all day long that nobody had any food, but you had a lunch, is it likely anyone is going to see the lunch? That smile says it all. It is highly unlikely I'm showing anybody my lunch. The boy, however, was willing not only to show his lunch, but to allow the disciples to know he had the lunch. And so Jesus said, bring the boy to me. Well, how could you say no to Jesus? You'd been listening to him speak all day. You knew there was something special about him. So they took the boy to Jesus, and Jesus said, um, I'm in need of your lunch. And the boy was willing to trade something that he could touch for something that was untouchable, something that was tangible for something that was spiritual. His own expectations of eating his lunch, a little bit of fish, a little bit of bread, so that he could make an investment he may not have been thinking on any kind of higher level, but it became clear immediately that something higher and more fantastic was about ready to happen. He chose something better. And at the end of the day, it was still his choice. While it is altogether possible in that culture at that time that the boy didn't really have a choice. I mean, boys didn't say no to teachers and to masters. But it was still his choice. He could have hidden 
He didn't have to be seen. He was a big crowd. He could have blended in. Could have hid his lunch under his robe or something like that. But I know that if you want to rise above the doldrums in life and want to be a good steward of what God has given you, you have to put aside tangible things and reach for something that's untouchable. You have to be willing to set aside food every now and then and say, I'm willing to fast so that I can receive something spiritual in my life. I'm willing to set aside things I touch for someone else who doesn't have those things. I'm willing to set aside some money so that I can fill a shoebox so that some kid somewhere in the world can have something to open. And not only open it, but know that there are people who care and that there's a God in heaven who cares about them. Being willing to make a trade of tangible things for something that's intangible, that cannot be touched. If you are at some sort of self-help seminar right now, I would want to tell all of you as fantastic salespeople how you ought to make these kinds of trades so that you can then have more trades. And all I would be really telling you is how you can trade something tangible for something else that's more tangible. In between, there may be an intangible stage, but I really want to trade the tangible for the tangible. Nike only wants you to think that they are trying to sell you the moment and the experience. They're selling you the shoes for the moment and the experience. Starbucks only wants you to think that they are selling you that third place, that wonderful ambiance of these earth tone colors and jazzy music you don't usually listen to. And high-priced coffee. Or expensive, high-calorie milkshakes called frappuccinos that Rachel will always order. Say, take me to coffee. She doesn't mean coffee. She means a frappuccino. <laughs> 700 calories without the whipped cream. <laughs> no, really, that's how much you're in a frappuccino. <laughs> I just ruined the moment for somebody. They'll never look at a frappuccino the same way again. I go to Starbucks. Don't mind Starbucks. Starbucks is a wonderful place. Love their tea. Love the moment. But I also know that, that the world's methods and the world's standards are trading something that is tangible for something else that's tangible. I'll give you money, you'll give me the product. I'll sell you the car, you'll give me the money for it. Anybody in sales? Just one person, a couple of people. Isn't that basically what you're doing? You're basically in selling, you're trading something that can be touched for something else that can be touched. And in between there, you try to convince them that this is the best touching of any product they've ever had before. Jesus was trying to convince them that they should trade something that can be touched for something that cannot be touched ever until perhaps you get to heaven. But it is not just a mere delayed gratification. It is a spiritual investment. And that's what Jesus was asking of him. He's asking of the boy to trade his own expectations, to move beyond a normal life, to move to something else, because stewardship requires that you invest your time, your talents, your treasures, something that you, for something that cannot be grasped, something that you can see, for something that you cannot see, something that's untouchable and incredibly spiritual. Now a word to those of you who are saying, how dare he talk about money? Well, I'm glad you brought it up because, frankly, I've not mentioned money except for what salesmen do. I've mentioned treasure, but I haven't mentioned money. In response, I guess I would say, how dare I not bring up trading something tangible for something intangible and untouchable? Isn't that what the spiritual life is all about? And by trading something from your wallet 
so that you can experience God's love and grace and richness and blessing, something untouchable. Isn't that a very spiritual moment and experience? How dare I not bring it up a little bit and tell you that we should, be, that we should not hold on to things which were never really ours to grasp. No gift is worth hanging on to if it could bless somebody else in the process. We ought to be willing to make that kind of a trade. I look out at poor Denise O'Brien. Denise, wave at everybody, I've just for a moment. I've embarrassed Denise once or twice before in life. Denise has known me for a couple of years now. Denise, um, I can't really tell how long because she's currently exaggerating her age and the low end. You quit doing that, so I've known you for 18 years then. In the process of 18 years, this is the fourth time she's heard me preach on this passage right here. You may not remember any of the others, but this is the fourth time. I looked at all of those other sermons this past week and thought, I could just, hey, I'd be done with my preparation in just five minutes. Reprint, put a different date on a different city. I'm good to go. Hit save, print, and we're done. I wouldn't do that. Well, I did that from the first to the second one, but I, no, I, I wouldn't. I only bring that up so that I can make a point here to tell you that in all of those three times before that I've talked about this passage, I never once have spent any amount of time on Jesus and wanting to get away from the crowd. I have missed it completely. I have spent a lot of time talking about the boy being willing to give up his lunch and what Jesus does that's fantastic after that, which you are very familiar with probably, how he takes that one small lunch of a few loaves and a little bit of fish, multiplies it, and suddenly these thousands and thousands of people are fed. I have spent a lot of time on that, but I've never spent any time with the fact that Jesus was willing to do something very different with his time than what we would expect. I chose to spend a lot of time on it this morning because I think it's extremely important that we understand what Jesus was willing to do. He was willing to trade a spectacular moment for something significant. Now there is something very spectacular that happens here. Jesus feeds 5,000 men plus women and children with a lunch that was very small to begin with. This is the point in time where Jesus turns a sack lunch into a buffet and an incredible buffet at that. I have always in the past, when I've met, talked about this story, I have only gone straight to the spectacular. And that's well and good. We ought to look at the spectacular and realize that Jesus could do spectacular things with what you bring Him. You may have limited resources. We all have limited talents and limited abilities. And when we give those to Jesus, He multiplies them and does great things through His Spirit. But sometimes we overlook doing something significant because we're waiting for the spectacular. And we often miss how we have invested our life because we reflect on it and say, nothing spectacular has happened. And we miss the stewardship of simply doing something significant in another person's life. We look for the greatest need, the biggest splash. We dash away to that often thinking that that will cause us to move beyond the doldrums in our life. And we ought to look and say that we should trade the spectacular for something significant. Because you'll find significant things in every moment, in everyday moments. We ought to look for ways to do something significant in the life of another, realizing that by doing that, we have been a good steward of what God had, and it can move us beyond the doldrums in life. Feeding a pie to a neighbor may not be spectacular, but it may be highly significant to that neighbor. Sending a care package to a college student. Sending a care package to a college student may not be spectacular. 
but it might be significant to the college student. She's such a dear, isn't she? Right on cue, she knows how to jump in. She must be a pastor's kid. An invitation to that all-alone widower down the street on a holiday or just any day to have a good home-cooked meal may not be spectacular, but it might be significant. An invitation to the family down the street who just stays to themselves on holidays and says, oh, it's not a big deal. We don't really celebrate that holiday very much. Maybe they're saying that because they've been estranged from their family for 20 years. And perhaps an invitation would go a long ways to help them. We don't know until we get to know them and discover ways to make significant investments in their life. I have a few Facebook friends who are, through the month of, thanks of November, are spending all of the days of November with something different, being thankful. And so that you'll read day number 13. Some of them are counting 13 things they're thankful for. Um, some of them are just giving me something that they're thankful for. And so they post it. I realize some of you hate Facebook. I understand that, I suppose. But I would not have heard what I'm about ready to share with you without Facebook. One of my friends who lives literally in the middle of nowhere, if you think you know Texas, you have no idea where this person lives. I had to look it up on a map in order to know how out of the way it is. It's so out of, it's so out of the way, not even oil's willing to gush up where she lives. She wrote on day 14, I am so thankful for the influence of Bruce and Cheryl Coates. I am a Christian today because they invested in my life. We didn't do anything spectacular for her, really. And after all, you could look and say, well, Pastor Bruce, she's only one. Yeah, that's true. But it's significant to her and to her kids and to the kids in the church that she attends because she does children's church and to her dad to her brother and to her sister. It's significant to her, to all of the people who are around her, so significant to us that we made her middle name Rachel's middle name because she and Rachel share a birthday. It is that significant to us. And her saying that was so significant to me, to me, it brought a tear to my eye. Not much does that in life. Because I was willing to trade this spectacular for something significant, an investment in a life. It was very easy to walk away from that particular church as the youth pastor and feel like I had not done much. There were not a lot of numbers that followed my 18 months there saying how the youth group had doubled in size or anything like that. It would have been very easy to chase the spectacular and feel discouraged. Now here I am 19 years later, 18, 19 years later, Counting how many significant things I may have done. Being willing to trade the spectacular for something that's significant. Because when you chase the spectacular, you almost always chase fame and glory. But if you try to do something significant over and over again, eventually it becomes spectacular as you've done that for enough people. Jesus was willing to do that. He is willing to, he's willing to do something particularly incredible. Something that was supernatural, in fact. I mean, how many of you, if I brought a lunch in, you could turn it into enough to feed everyone here? 
It was an inevitable part of the sermon that I would come to right here where I would tell you that you could trade your sack lunch for Jesus' buffet. That you could trade whatever you have for what Jesus can do. But let me talk a little bit about the supernatural for a moment so that you don't confuse the supernatural. I want you to understand that the boy's part in this story was very natural. He had a natural lunch. Nothing spectacular about that. He didn't have a supernatural lunch. He had fish and he had bread. And friends, there's nothing really special about just fish and bread. No mayonnaise, no butter, no pickles. Pickles are nasty anyway. No ice cream to go with it. Nothing of fish, bread, probably matzo bread to beat that. And there he was, his lunch, and he was willing to give it up to the disciples who were then going to take it to the master. I'm sure at one point he thought, well, maybe the master's hungry. I guess it's okay for him to eat it and not me. Maybe there's a sarcastic comment that went along with that whole process. I, it would have been if it had been me. Just one boy who is willing to give up his lunch, a very natural act, then Jesus blesses it and something super takes place. Just 12 disciples who pass out the food to everyone in the crowd, very natural act of handing out food. And Jesus blesses it and adds something super to the whole matter. Just one person, Peter, who gets out of a boat and walks, all Peter did was walk. Jesus added the super part to make sure that he walked on water. We confuse those things thinking that we have to do something spooky or mystical for Jesus to do something supernatural and hardly ever, maybe once in a lifetime, is it anything like that. Most of the time, we are doing ordinary things in very natural ways and God adds something super to that moment to make it supernatural. You never know when you can make a great contribution by investing in someone else and allowing God to do something supernatural with your very natural activities. Very natural activities with the young lady in my youth group from Texas. Very natural activities in most times in my life when something extraordinary has happened. In fact, most of the times when I've really anticipated something supernatural could happen here, I should prepare an extra special sermon because someone told me they were going to be there and they need something supernatural in their life. So I spend extra time crafting just the right detail of the sermon for them. And then they don't show up. That's happened quite a bit in my life. I've learned long ago, just do whatever you do and whoever's there, just let God do whatever He's going to do. Do something very natural and let God do something very super with that. And see what happens. That's what the supernatural is. The supernatural is allowing God to do something spectacular with your average, ordinary things. So lest you think you could never do anything spectacular, that's fine. Trade the spectacular for something significant. Lest you think that, oh, I could never do anything supernatural, that's okay. None of us can, really. None of us can do anything supernatural. We're all natural people. We do natural things, and God does something super with the natural things that we do. And in the end, we discover that God has done something amazing. For those of you who are wondering where the Holy Spirit is in Compassion Ministries, it's right here. We do natural things by giving natural things away, natural money or time or talent or resources to people to feed the hungry or to fix a car for someone who's in need, and God does something super with that moment. Jesus adds something super so that what we did becomes something amazing, and our simple acts of compassion and kindness revolutionize the world when He adds His Spirit to those moments. Don't think that you have to set out on some amazing trip to do something significant. 
All you will need to do is walk outside of this sanctuary and you may stumble over a six-year-old running through the building or a 16-year-old and a little bit of love and compassion directed in their way saying, I'm willing to take just an extra moment to say hi, to meet someone, to shake their hand, to get to know them, to ask how their week was, that that can be something highly significant. And it is a stewardship of who you are. With permission, I tell you that a dad brought his daughter to see the pastor. She was 15 years old because all stories like this seem to be about 15-year-old girls. She had tried to kill herself. And so she told the pastor about this and the pastor asked a few questions and she said, no one loves me, no one cares. So the pastor explored a few possible people who might love her and to everyone she said with a very dark twist, no, they don't love me. No, they don't love me either. No, they don't. Reaching for straws, the pastor stopped and looked at her and said, well, I love you. That's why I'm here talking to you. And she had nothing she could say to contradict that. So they arrived at a solution together. Every time that they saw each other, the pastor would give her a hug. Often a sideways hug because that's the appropriate way for a pastor, for any man to hug a young lady, if you're going to do it at all. Every time that they saw each other, they would exchange a hug so that she could know and remember that someone loved her. Years later, when the pastor left the church, he pulled her aside and charged her with the task of passing on that love and that investment, telling her, what I have done for you, you should do for other people who are young in your life. She is still my Facebook friend, and she is a teacher. As she actively practices the stewardship of the heart. Ordinary things with an extraordinary spirit giving life. And the Spirit is waiting for those kind of moments. The Spirit is waiting to bring those investments to your life as well. And as you are willing to make those investments, the Spirit is waiting to bring you to life. To take your heart and bring that to life. And so that would be my opportunity for you this morning to respond. So many things about this sermon that give you an opportunity to respond. The first one would be for you to simply say, I will make an investment and trade some of my quiet days for noisy crowds. Another would be to say, I'll trade some of my own expectations of holding on to things so that I can make an investment in someone else's life. Another one would be for you to say, okay, I'll I'll stop looking for the spectacular moment and I'll I'll look for something significant in someone else's life. That might be as simple as saying I participated in putting together a box for a boy who I've never met and will never meet. But perhaps it will do something significant in his life. And another might be to say I am not walking with God in my journey through life. But this morning I kind of like what you're saying. I'd like to make that kind of investment in other people. And I would like for God to do that through me like to give him my life and see what sort of significant things he will help me do. And if that's you this morning, I would simply tell you that all of us in our journey through life are incapable of reaching God on our own. Sin separates us. Things that we have done that we shouldn't have done, that the Bible calls sin, separates us from the love of Christ. And the only way for us to overcome that is through the love of Jesus, who came to earth and was willing to give of himself for you on your behalf. And in being willing to do that, he was willing to suffer, to die, 
to spend three days dead and be brought back to life so that you could receive life this very moment in this service. So that you could say, I've done a lot of stuff and I've never come to him wanting his forgiveness, wanting his life to be put inside of me. And if that's the case, your opportunity for response this morning is right now. For you to say, yeah, that describes me and I want to do something about that. And so that you can have a private moment, I'd ask everybody if they'd close their eyes, please. So the worship team is going to come for a moment.